This episode contains detailed descriptions of shipwrecks and might not be suitable for everyone. The year of 1912 was an interesting one in Falmouth. Queen Mary's Gardens behind Gillen Bay's Beach were opened that year in commemoration of the coronation of Queen Mary, the wife of King George V. This subtropical collection of beauties, where succulents easily withstand the draft of winter, where brightly colored benches invite you to take a moment, and where the legendary Gunera plants make us feel we're in some prehistoric place, are now considered a staple of the town over a hundred years later. St. George's Cinema, now a shopping arcade in Church Street, was also built in 1912, and at the time it was the second largest in the country. 1912 saw Sir Ernest Shackleton make another visit to Falmouth, and this year too, as you might be wondering, saw Falmouth and the world face the terrible disaster of the Titanic. With his long maritime immigration history, it perhaps comes as no surprise that the Titanic was carrying Cornish people across the Atlantic. Cornish newspapers frequently reported on shipwrecks or accidents at sea along the three coasts of Cornwall, but the magnitude of what was to come could not be imagined in advance. In this episode, we study how the Titanic news broke and how this affected Cornwall. We take a look at Cornwall's shipwreck history and what it is done in land for those who died at sea. And we tell the story of Henry Philip Chris, deck engineer and Falmodian among the crew of the Titanic on its only unfaithful journey. My name is Cheresa de Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill. In this beautiful December day, I am with Abigail Wincott, who's a colleague from Falmouth University, and she's helping me record here at the cemetery. We're going to try to find Harry, Henry William Crease and his father, Henry Philip Crease's grave down at the bottom of the cemetery. We are starting at the main entrance and we're rounding the chapel that is used now um, for the equipment of the cemetery and we're going to go down the hill to be able to find this grave. So we're going down this way? We are going okay. down this way. Let's we're go. taking, we're following the shape of the chapel and then we're taking the path that is immediately a little bit at the right of it, but going down the hill. So what's the name again? Henry Philip Chris. He's not on the, this first road, he's behind it. Okay. So, so we're, we're going to have to walk, through. yeah. Okay, here we are. Okay. So here's a gap we can go down. This is the gap, but be careful because it's very muddy. Okay. And we're walking towards a step pyramid-like grave. That one over there. Yeah. That is Henry Philip. Is it? Yeah. It's very <laughs> unusual looking. It is, actually. If you see the one right next to it. Yeah. Well, not right next to it, oh, but... Yeah. And the one after that. Yeah. They, they used to have crosses on the okay. top. Um, so he's lost his cross. He has lost his cross. And I wonder whether the cross is actually underneath all of that greenery. Yeah. 
it's part of the cemetery that is very some parts of it are very overgrown like this grave over here with the brambles yeah or some of the gravestones are broken yeah yeah but we have the theory that the cross is somewhere mm. but you would need to lift all of this and who knows what you might find yeah let's try to walk down a bit closer Okay, let's come over here. So here we are at the grave of Henry William Crease and his father, Henry Philip Crease. Actually, if you can see, it's already starting to crumble. There's, it's made of brick, it's lifted off the ground by this kind of ancient brick. Yeah. But it has begun to crumble and we've, we've let the people at the cemetery know. This is a historical grave because Henry Philip was... Um, he was an engineer in the Titanic. So he's actually not buried here, as you would expect, uh, from someone who was lost in the Titanic. But it says so there. It says, in loving memory of Henry Philip, the beloved husband of Annie Napton Crease, one of the brave engineers of the RMS Titanic, who was lost at sea April 15th, 1912, aged 44 years. This is the story of one of Falmo's own, a man about to retire and called into duty on that faded journey you know the story of. But this time we're relating how the story of the Titanic anchors back to Falmouth and Cornwall, and how the news of the most famous shipwreck in the world broke in stages for the people anxiously waiting for it. For now, let's learn a little bit about Henry Philip Kreese. Henry Philip Kreese was born in Falmouth in 1867, the second of five siblings. His father Charles was a member of the Falmouth Coast Guard and his mother Jane Reed was a Cornish woman. Henry grew up next to the sea among a family of seafarers. He married fellow Falmouthian Elizabeth Ann Inglendon Napton in Cardiff in 1895, where Henry's eldest brother, William, a mariner, lived with his family. Henry was an apprentice at Harland and Wolfe, which built ships exclusively for the White Star Line Shipping Company of Liverpool. He achieved a second-class engineer certificate and undertook service on board a number of ships. In 1898, he joined the White Star Line Shipping Company and served as an engineer on their RMS Olympic and the RMS Titanic. At 44, Henry was one of the oldest engineers aboard the Titanic. His experience would have given him some authority. Deck engineers help navigate ships and might take command if for some reason the captain becomes incapacitated. They also stand watch during various periods when the ship is at sea. Henry is highly likely to have been one of those overseeing the evacuation of passengers from the Titanic. 
Did he see that the lifeboats were filled in as orderly a fashion as possible? Was he one of those tasks with making unimaginably hard decisions when it became clear that there would be no time to wait for rescuing ships and that the lifeboats wouldn't be enough? Did he keep watch as the ship sunk under him whilst the lifeboats were set loose on the frozen sea? The Falmouth packet followed the history of the Titanic closely and made space available for Cornish victims. As a local man, Henry Chris's story appears in a couple of issues of the weekly newspaper. Lakes Falmouth Packet, 19th of April, 1912. Falmouth Man on Board. One of the crew of the Titanic is Mr. H. Crease, aged 44 years, son-in-law of Mr. and Mrs. Napton of Harbour Terrace. Mr. Crease, who holds a second engineer's certificate, was deck engineer on the liner. He has been in the employ of the White Star Company for many years, and was formerly on the Olympic and Adriatic. It was his intention to retire from the sea, but the officials of the company begged him to join the new liner and promised him promotion on the next voyage. Mr. Crease was born at Falmouth, being a son of a member of HM Coast Guard. Our representative called on Mrs. Napton yesterday and found her in a state of terrible suspense. She stated that her daughter was anxiously waiting for the names of the survivors amongst the crew and was fervently hoping that her husband might be amongst the saved. She refused to give up hope until the full list of survivors had been published. There is a photo of Henry Kreese, dressed in his uniform, looking straight at the camera, clear eyes and clean-shaven face except for a moustache. He had postponed the decision to retire, perhaps until after this trip. How this must have widened Annie's and his wife's suffering as she held on to hope, waiting for the promise of a full list of survivors. Lakes Falmouth Packet, 26th of April, 1912 the name of Mr. H. Crease, deck engineer, does not appear amongst the survivors, and he has been given up as lost. The deepest sympathy is felt for the widow and her two children in their great sorrow. Henry's body, like that of many others, was never recovered. He's remembered in Falmouth Cemetery, and as many others lost to the Titanic, in memorials and cemeteries across the UK and the world, including the Engineers Memorial in East Park, Southampton, the Liverpool Titanic and Engineers Memorial, and the Institute of Marine Engineers Memorial in London. He is also mentioned on the family grave at Hollybrook Cemetery in Lordswood, Southampton, where Annie and his daughters lived at the time, in the city from where the Titanic set off 
on Wednesday, 10th of April, 1912. When the news of the Titanic broke, information came in waves. Newspapers in America, the United Kingdom, and the world were trying to construct a complete narrative of the event. However, the news would come in fractions, in cables, at different times, and reprinted from other sources. Weekly newspapers like the Falmouth Packet were unable to keep up with the detail, dedicated as they were to cover this event fully. And by the time the Titanic sank, people had time to worry and react, and to wonder why this had happened, and whether their loved ones were safe. With a history so much part of our popular culture, it's surprising to go back and to read how it was reported. The Daily Mail, for example, shows a three-column spread on Tuesday, 16th of April 1912, a day after the Titanic sank, relaying confidently that no lives were lost. It goes on to share an official statement of the White Star Line Company, which had announced that all passengers were saved and that the Carpathia had picked 20 boats full of passengers and that the Virginian was towing the Titanic toward Halifax. The article continues to reassure the audience, explaining from Montreal and New York how the transport of passengers to safety had been done successfully, and that the passengers were also en route to Halifax to follow their journey via train to New York. Wednesday 17th of April brought forward another phase of the story, and as reporters had to find their way through conjecture and rumor, the truth of the disaster was beginning to set in. A headline of the Daily Mail on this day reads, Boat loads of women, few men among survivors, 868 saved, 1,490 missing. It is perhaps unthinkable now, where news seem instantaneous and varied, that an event like this could be misreported so yet it would have taken a while before a comprehensive understanding of what happened would come through. The news shocked everyone, including the royal family. Telegraph to the White Star Line Company in Liverpool from King George V. Sandringham, 6.30pm. The Managing Director, White Star Line, Liverpool. The Queen and I are horrified at the appalling disaster which has happened to the Titanic and at the terrible loss of life. We deeply sympathise with the bereaved relatives and feel for them in their great sorrow with all our hearts. The Falmouth Packet, on its weekly rotation, only got to the news on Friday 19th of April, when it announces, and I quote, Titanic wrecked by an iceberg. Greatest liner in the world missed disaster. A thousand four hundred and ninety persons drowned. Local passengers on board. End quote. This detailed report includes distances, speed, a timeline of events, the first cry for help. The article also explains the conditions of the rescue operation, where, on an already perilous sea, a heavy fog was lying off the coast and a thunderstorm was traveling toward the area. And I quote, Such conditions, it is pointed out, leave little hope of the rescue of any Titanic survivors who might still be adrift on rafters and in boats. End quote. Here is where the legendary details we know of the Titanic begin to come through. 
The Titanic sank with her captain at his post on the bridge. Her band remained lined up on the deck, but instead of the ragtime with which they had sought to cheer and liven their companions in this dread disaster, they played the simple and beautiful strains of a hymn. The story of how the world's greatest ship was engulfed by the waters and went down with her band playing Nearer My God to Thee is one that will live throughout the ages. Lakes Falmouth Packet, 19th of April, 1912 Now that the story was coming together, newspapers across the world begin to include diagrams of where the Titanic sank and which ship came to help, specifications of the accommodations on board, photos of the survivors and of those missing, responses from the public, and analysis from experts. Sir Ernest Shackleton, who happened to be in Falmouth around these dates, was one of the ones called to command. But before we hear from him, let's learn about Cornwall and his own shipwreck history. In 1856, William Turner captured a fanciful take on Falmouth Harbour in action. The famous painter's print shows Pendennis Castle in the foreground, melancholic, ancient and almost unrecognizable. In his book The Leveling Sea, author Philip Marston describes Turner's print by saying, and I quote, The Tudor castles are widely distorted, and the scene is full of melodrama, end quote. This exaggerated version of Falmouth Harbour contrasts with one description we found in Sir Robert Rawlinson's 1854 report on the living conditions of the inhabitants of the borough. The harbour of Falmouth is a splendid sheet of water, presenting an area of some ten square miles, protected by high lands so as to be a safe haven for shipping. Average spring tides rise 18 feet, neap tides about 7 feet. Heavy gales occasionally bring the water in two or three feet above the ordinary level of the tide. Robert Rawlison, Esquire, Superintendent Inspector, 1854. Falmouth Bay is a combination of these versions. In a calm summer day, when paddle surfers are balancing out on a calm pool-like sea, it is easy to understand Robert Rawlinson's description of the splendid sheet of water. If, however, you happen to walk by on a cold January evening, where the storm is churning the sea across the bay, you can probably imagine why Turner chose to depict the melodrama. Cornwall is, after all, infamous for its shipwrecks, which count above Thick Southern to this day. In 1912 alone, ten ships wrecked, beached, or drifted ashore in the coasts of Cornwall. None of this amounted to much loss of life, but several of the ships broke, and one of them, Maud, can still be seen near Kynan's Cove in low tide. It is traditionally said about the north coast, from Pentire Point to Heartland Light, a watery grave by day and night. Perhaps even more notorious is the coast by the Lizard Peninsula, famous for wrecks such as the Royal Anne Galley wrecked in November 10, 1721, with 200 crew and passengers drowned. The seaways of this coast, considered exceptionally hazardous, were historically known as the graveyard of ships. One shipwreck in Cornwall changed the way communities dealt with the victims of these disasters washing up on their shores. <laughs> 
when the HMS Anson wrecked on the 29th of December 1807 in Mount Spain near Penzance, leaving a loss of life calculated between 60 and over 100 men. The bodies were buried in pits dug on unconsecrated ground on the cliffs. There were no burial rites to mark their passing. This caused a wide controversy which led Cornish solicitor Thomas Grills to draft a bill to remedy the situation. John Harold Romain, Member of Parliament for Cornwall at the time, introduced a bill which would become the Burial of Drowned Persons Act, or Grills Act, passed in 1808. The Act provided that unclaimed bodies of dead persons cast ashore from the sea should be removed by church wardens and overseers of the parish, and decently interred in consecrated ground. A monument to the drowned sailors and to the passing of Grills Act stands near the entrance to the harbour of Port Leven. Of the 26th of April, 1912, Sir Ernest Shackleton, famous polar explorer and one of the principal figures of the so-called heroic age of Antarctic exploration, was visiting Falmouth and was invited to open the Falmouth Spring Flower Show. According to the packet, the weather on the day was delightful and the event a success, with his committee manifesting, and I quote, a very human and thoughtful spirit in allocating half of the net proceeds to the Major's Titanic Distress Fund, end quote. Sir Ernest addressed the room briefly about the Titanic, at first expressing that he did not want to dwell much on such a sad subject, going on to point out how more on the topic would be heard and that the judgments should not be made yet. He expressed his hopes that the British inquiry be led by experts who would be looking into the question of visibility at nighttime as a matter of great importance. He pointed out that experienced sailors who knew Iceland and seas thought that, and I quote, the higher they were above the deck, the less competent they were to judge the approach of the ice. Shackleton suggested that the papers had failed to mention this and went on to say that he always had a man as near to the waterline as possible, in misty weather and at nighttime when traveling through ice. This kind of a speculation quickly became part of the narrative surrounding the Titanic, and it has continued to this day. Stories from survivors begin to take over the newspaper pages. One relates the story of a crowded lifeboat and mentions a survivor's pressing, and I quote, those women were braver than some of the men. They never cried. Almost most of them had husbands in the ship. And man, I tell you, when the ship sank and the moans of the drowning came over the water, one of those women began right away to sing a hymn. It was this, Eternal Father, strong so safe. Eternal Father, strong so safe. Eternal Father, strong so safe. She sang it so that the other women would not listen to those pitiful moans, and we all joined in and sang. It was only moaning that came over the water, the moaning of hundreds who were being chilled to death in the icy water. It was too cold for them to be able to shout. Lakes Falmouth Packet, 1912. Condemnations and opinions accompany the receding reports on the disaster. A report on a Sunday service relates that Reverend C.F. Kite, citing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, 
said that the saddest thing about the disaster was that with ordinary care it need never have happened. He went on to say, and I quote, The largest and most costly ship, shamefully luxurious in its appointments, had been picked out to pay the price, and it became expedient there should be a wholesale sacrifice of innocent victims in order that better regulation should be obtained, end quote. An interesting effort to make clear the democratizing element of such a disaster is present in many of the reports of the Titanic. We saw in episode 3 how this too forms part of the response to World War I and the great loss of life. Humbled by such a stark reality, British society begins to shed some of its old ideas. This is another quote from the Falmouth Packet. It should rather be remembered that much of the heroism displayed in this the greatest of all maritime disasters, goes unchronicled, and that those whose names have been mentioned were associated at last, no whit less noble or devoted, end quote. Have we learned all we need about a disaster like the Titanic's? Why does it still haunt us so? Do we know enough about ourselves to avoid the preventable? Or is it our power outdone by our ambition? The murmurs you've been hearing are the voices of the Red River singers, singing The Finest Ship, a song about the Titanic written by a member of the choir, Len Davis, who passed away in 2016. He wrote the song in memory of his relatives Harry and Shadrach Gale, two Cornish brothers and miners who boarded the Titanic as second-class passengers on their ticket number 28664, which cost £21 for both. They were headed for Colorado. Their bodies, like Henry Philip Kreese's, were never recovered. There's a memorial to them in Calstock Churchyard. We dedicate this episode to Len Davis and all the victims of the Titanic. Here's the finest ship in its entirety before we share Adam's creative piece. We won't let them sing that air 
Dalton's creative response to the life of Henry Crease. To Jane Crease, Penny Cross, in Plymouth, from Henry Crease, second class engineer, RMS Titanic, sailing out of Southampton on the 8th of April 1912. Dear Mama, forgive me for not writing sooner but I am only recently returned to port. I was honoured to be a member of the deck crew tasked with delivering RMS Titanic from Belfast, where Harland and Wolfe built her, of course, to Southampton, where she'll take on board her first passengers in just a few days. As soon as I was back in port, I hurried home to my dearest Elizabeth and our two darling girls. Elizabeth, Dorothy and Gladys pass on their warmest wishes to their grandmother, hoping to see you soon. It has since been a busy time getting my trunk packed with starched shirts and everything I'll need to see me all the way to America. And I have only now, at the last moment, sat down to write you this missive. I say all the way to America, yet the voyage will not take as long as you might think. Only six days! Can you imagine a ship can carry 3,547 across 2,875 miles in just six days? Truly, the RMS Titanic is the greatest wonder of the modern age. The eighth wonder of the world, I heard one fellow call her. The RMS Titanic also has a tonnage of 46,328 tonnes and is 269 metres long. She's bigger than both RMS Olympic and RMS Adriatic. No wonder she is called the Titanic. A ship that big, the biggest the world has ever known, surely cannot be sunk. It would be like trying to sink Great Britain itself. Britannia truly does rule the waves. The newspapers and everyone call her the unsinkable Titanic. So, in one week from now, I will arrive in New York, Mama. 
It is the other side of the world, nearly, and the farthest I have ever been from home, whether that be Southampton or Falmouth. The RMS Titanic will assuredly pass by Plymouth on its journey. I hope we will pass close enough to the shore for you to see us and wave. A ship as big as ours, I cannot believe you will not be able to see us, as we will all but block out the sun, maybe. Perhaps Father will also be able to catch a boat ride with his friends in the Coast Guard, so that they can head out for the impressive sight of the Titanic under full steam. I will watch for him anyway, and wave back. I am very much looking forward to seeing New York. They say it now rivals London in size, and that it has buildings almost as tall as the Titanic itself. The famous Statue of Liberty will be there to greet us too. We will be entering a world of giants, Mama, like Gulliver arriving in Brobdingnag in Mr. Swift's novel. Elizabeth is excited to hear the latest fashions in New York. She calls it cosmic-politan fashion or some such. I do not think I have got the word quite right, but then I only need concern myself with my smart new uniform and keeping my buttons and boots shiny. I will no doubt buy her some American garment so that she may be the talk of Southampton. I am not convinced America can produce anything to match the finery of Manchester cotton, but Elizabeth assures me I am not fully informed on such matters. I shall leave it to her and the girls to navigate me correctly. Can you believe Dorothy and Gladys are also wanting of some exotic fashion items? I had expected them to ask for sweets or some other confection. Candy, I think they call it, in New York. However, they are all grown up now. They have grown so quickly, Mama. Dorothy is 13 already. She is about to finish school and then, all too soon, she will be looking to find a position and marriage. It was only a blink ago that she was a babe in my arms. Perhaps it was only two blinks ago that you remember me as a babe in your own arms. Three blinks for my dear older brother William, perhaps. I thank you, Father, and God every day for my fortune in having William as a brother. If it had not been for him securing that apprenticeship with Harland and Wolf all those years ago, I would never have found that opportunity to join the White Star Line Shipping Company and eventually the crew of the RMS Titanic. Standing upon the deck of the RMS Titanic, you truly feel the world moving beneath you. You feel like you are riding the world, that you have mastered it, and that you have become one of the lords of that world. It is a giddying feeling, naturally, but you should remember to be humbled by it as well, else the sin of pride carry one away with it. It always does to remain alert and respectful when it comes to the sea, it goes without saying as the poor crew and passengers of the RMS Atlantic and RMS Republic learnt to their terrible cost. Yet I will not dwell upon such loss, Mama, because I would not wish to cause you any unnecessary worry about me. Be in no doubt that my voyage on the unsinkable Titanic will be one of joyous transport only. I fear I must close now, for I am due aboard the magnificent ship the crew must embark several days before departure to welcome any very important passengers, VIPs, who wish to be instated in their rooms at a time most convenient to them.
As a member of the deck crew, I will be conducting such passengers to their cabins. I will be meeting actual lords and ladies, Mama. Could you have ever imagined that your humble son would engage with persons of such elevation? It will be a proud moment for me, without doubt. I will be sure to tell you more of it when I next see you, dearest Mama. Perhaps I should also buy you an American garment when I reach New York. You need never wear it, of course, if I select badly. Being so ill-informed in such matters as I am. Your fond and ever-loving son, Henry Philip Creese, second-class engineer, RMS Titanic. This creative piece by A.J. Dalton was inspired by the true life of Henry Philip Creese. I had the opportunity to sit with Adam and ask him questions about his response. Hello, Adam, again. Um, in this piece, we're looking at probably the most notorious grave in the cemetery, a grave from someone who was in the Titanic. Can you tell us about why you chose Henry Philip Chris? Yeah, well, the name Titanic was, a <laughs> was yes. an, an obvious... Um, selling point selling point but interestingly um the grave is more of a memorial um and there was more information about the people who survived henry crease and then the generations that were then buried and i thought it was interesting that to think about um those who suffered um, based on the people they lost on the Titanic. Yeah. You know, the people who stayed on shore and the families that then had to survive without their main breadwinner, for example. Mm-hmm. And I thought how it affected not just the immediate generation, you know, the, the widow and the children who had lost their father, but then even, you know, future generations yeah. probably suffered. Um, so it, it was... I, I kind of the creative piece was a study of of loss that that is does, goes beyond the traditional one year grieving period. You know, mm-hmm. it goes through generations. That yes. sense of loss and the fact that tit- the Titanic is still so famous is I think there's a larger sense of societal loss and social loss because mm-hmm. there were so many hopes and dreams and yes. we thought we were lords of the world suddenly. Yes. Which is very present in this piece. This yeah. kind of hopeful uh, mastery of yeah, everything. Yeah, and pride. Yes. Huge pride. And and it turns out this was like one of the great, symbolically, the great last hurrah of the British Empire that sunk beneath the waves, you know. Yes. Britain does not rule the waves anymore. Um, and what does a society do with itself and its ego once it comes to that realization. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the sense of grief goes on. Yes. I found it quite interesting to see the American dream so present in this piece, this idea of the cosmic politan fashions <laughs> of New York. Yeah, I mean, America was the new world, yeah. you know? Um, and we were sailing out of old England to the new world, which is the land of opportunity, the land of, you know, a damn sight more social freedom, yes. which in many ways is a good thing. Sailing mm-hmm. out of the British Empire, we, where we had vassal states and vassal mm-hmm. econ- uh, colonies, 
to America, which had broken free in the you know revolution, yes. uh, where there was more social freedom. Um, you've got to remember Henry Creese himself is, is is from a very working class family. Yes, and that comes across as well, where yeah. he has to send the passengers, the kind yeah. of lords and ladies. His family was very itinerant, originally out of old Ireland. Mm-hmm. You know, they followed the family from port to port around the British Isles. Yes. Um, doing one a short-term job as a coast guard moving on to an to you know probably involved in some sort of smuggling i couldn't pin that down mm. but you know the father had to move on every 10 years that was quite clear i see uh, and he you know turns up in falmouth mm-hmm. working the boats not a rich man the kids would not have been in school mm-hmm. so the kids would have had to start earning their own crust on the boats as well mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a fait accompli. That was it. Yeah. You know, you, the jobs yeah. are on boats. And there were three sons, I think, at least three. Uh, one died younger. And they were all, you know, from their teenage years off on boats going to other ports, yes. meeting girlfriends, future mm. wives. And, mm. I mean, in some ways it's, you know, Falmouth was like a global port. It was. You know, and a global village. Mm. And that's very represented in the cemetery where we have someone laid at that time. Yeah, and people from all around the world yeah. kind of end up in Falmouth and are buried there. And you're like, how did they get here? Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and actually, you know, Falmouth was a port of the world. And it was where old world meets new world. And, you know, people with dreams and hopes mm-hmm. set out and then sadly were, came back to be buried. Yeah, you know, that's right. Back on their native soil, as it were. Um, I quite like how this piece straddles this um, duality between foreboding and immediate tragedy and sadness, which you have from the dear mama, yeah, someone coming from the Titanic, as well as a touch of humor in things like the candy being called in, in the sweets being called candy in America or the cosmopolitan that we were talking about earlier. I um, I mean the first bit of what you said, the the poignancy and the sadness bit, I. The Titanic steals the limelight. Yes. And we like, oh, yeah, died on the t- Titanic. They're a Titanic family, blah, 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 blah. I really wanted to make it clear that the White Star shipping line had actually lost a number of passenger vessels. Right. Although it innovated and was building these huge passenger ships, blah, 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 blah. They'd lost um, the Olympic, mm-hmm. uh, the Atlantic, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people died in that, and we we never hear about them. That's right. And, you know, their sacrifice actually enabled the White Star shipping line to refine the design of these ships mm-hmm. and build faster ones and bigger and better. And they almost kind of, you know, wrote off all those losses as, you know, part of the innovation and just carried on and mm. and then I think the Titanic was where financially and in terms of their ego and their ambition which should have been checked earlier perhaps um, it mm. all came crashing down but I there's a poignancy there of generations of loss um, which I kind of wanted to flag up so I wrote a very poignant piece and then at the same time you know there were other ships that were extremely successful that you mm-hmm. know set the record for crossing crossing the 
the Atlantic. The Atlantic. <laughs> That's the, not the Pacific. The, big, the Atlantic. The there. Yeah. World <laughs> records. These passenger liners broke records doing mm-hmm. that. And people who did make it safely to America, mm-hmm. you know, it was a land of opportunity yeah. in many ways. Changed many Not lives. all the ways, but in many ways. Yeah. Um, and we began to shrug off quite a draconian, hierarchy-based British Empire, very mm-hmm. class-bound. Mm-hmm. So for a working-class person like Henry, there was a sense of social transport occurring, That's you know, right. transporting himself socially. You know, he was even, in some ways, a ship is a bit of a leveller in that, you know, he was, mm-hmm. you know, socialising with lords and ladies and that, that sort of yeah. melting pot aspect that is famous for of America actually began on the Titanic. Mm-hmm. I say that. Yeah. I say that, but let's face it. The nobility on the boat all got on the life rafts. Exactly. And I have to tell you that as a second-class engineer rather than a third-class, Henry Creese would not have just been working in the engine room. Mm-hmm. He would have been on the deck. He would also have worked on the deck. Okay. So he conducted people to their... The life cabins rafts. and then to the life rafts uh-huh. but he stayed on that boat so he he took the lords and ladies mm-hmm. to safety yeah he had to be though one of the last people off the boat of course and of course there were no lifeboats left mm-hmm. and he died so ultimately the nobility was saved the working class man was yeah, not saved was not. so i also wanted to celebrate henry crease yes you know it's quite a even though obviously we have the poignancy and the sadness there we know with the word Titanic from the get-go, where this is ending. I think you used it really cleverly in the sense of, it's there, that foreboding is there, but if this was the last letter a mother would have of her son, there's still so much to celebrate there and to to think about positively, like the daughters, the, the wife, um, the fact that he felt on top of the world. He felt, I'm, I'm going to do this. and. Yes, that is sad, but at the same time, he's happy. He's mm. he's um, saying a kind of fun, see you later, instead of a goodbye. Yeah, um, I want and that joyous feel. I, mm. I felt had to be had to balance the heartbreaking poignancy of the letter yes. and and what and his sacrifice. Yes, and I wanted that celebration because I wanted to give a sense of heroism to this guy because mm-hmm. he was one of the ones who conducted the people to the lifeboats and yeah. sacrificed his own life in doing so and he was a son of Falmouth mm-hmm. um, and there was heroism in that now I think that is recognised and there are um, you know many stories of working class heroism attached mm-hmm. to the Titanic yes including of course the famous movie <laughs> yes um, which I think you kind of hinted at the movie a little bit yeah. in that paragraph where he's physically in the Titanic I could feel the movie in the background a little <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but this guy was a real guy yes um, you know yeah um, he was he was in a shiny uniform mm-hmm. with the shiniest of buttons and boots and he would have he would have been immensely proud immensely of proud course. and he would have wanted to share something of that with his with his wife and yeah. his and his mother and so on yeah um you know the newspapers were full of it mm-hmm. it was it was a huge moment of social celebration it was and pride um i had a question about that because you at the beginning of the letter you include 
a few facts about the Titanic, the numbers, and which we know historically is kind of related to the Titanic, how big it was, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about or hear from you what you felt about including actual facts and how you whipped them into something that's creative. Mm. Well, I, I kind of um, put it in to kind of give Henry a bit of a feel of a, a nerd and a geek. <laughs> um, he was like nerdishly proud, geekishly proud. Now, actually, he, he had worked in the Harland and Wolfe um, uh, shipyards in Ireland. Yes. That's where he'd done his apprenticeship mm. and he'd helped build various. I think the RMS Olympic was the mm-hmm. one he'd helped build. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so he would know how many rivets had gone right, into building yes. a ship and he would know how long the ship was, he would know mm. its dimensions. And of course, the Titanic was longer and faster mm-hmm. and bigger. And those physical numbers actually when you boast about them in a record-breaking kind of way, mm-hmm. um, kind of add to that sense of pride and, you know, that, yes. that sense of record-breaking detail mm. yep. in a geeky, nerdy way. It does, definitely. Um, and I think it, but it, I think it also grounds the, the, the creative piece mm-hmm. in fact. Yeah. And if, if you're going to write a very emotional piece... Mm-hmm. It needs to be grounded because otherwise you've got carried away with sentimentality. Yes. And to avoid sentimentality, you've got mm-hmm. to ground something in fact. I agree. So, yeah, it's, a, it's the creative writer, senior lecturer in me that's yes. like, good, it, this <laughs> like, is good practice. Come on. This is good practice. <laughs> Get those facts um, in. Yeah. But, yeah, at, at the same time, we look at the numbers now mm-hmm. and they seem tawdry, mm-hmm. which, it, which is kind of like we – and. We therefore recognise the arrogance of the era. Right. And in many ways, the Titanic, what happened was a really brought the British Empire back down to earth. Mm-hmm. It brought, you know, our overweening pride and ambition back down to earth. So there's another sort of grounding there. Mm. That the numbers actually, when you look at them, seem quite small nowadays. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, okay, size of a football pitch. Well, the boats today are much bigger. Yes. You know, shouldn't have called and it. Successfully the, go yeah. and come back. Shouldn't have called it the Titanic, really, because yeah. it's not that big. It's mm. a bit of a dinky, dinky <laughs> boat. Should certainly shouldn't have called it unsinkable. Yes, you know that was course like a curse. Way yeah, yeah I mean it. that's putting the evil eye on it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was really touched by there's a couple of moments where you talk about people being on the shore and waving. Whether the boat goes through Plymouth, and maybe I see you waving, and there's a moment where he waves at his father as well. Mm. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, Henry Cruz didn't get to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we well, we certainly don't have a sense of this letter yes. having existed. He didn't get say get to say goodbye. If you look at the memorial in the cemetery, mm-hmm. there is a clear sense of the surviving relatives saying goodbye, building a memorial. Yes. Because in and in a in a way they didn't get to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, you know, we do have the black and white photos, and there were there are a lot of surviving images of the Titanic leaving dock, mm-hmm. where, you know, the families are waving goodbye to those on the deck. Yes. Um, in an excited way. Um, 
but actually they didn't say a proper heartfelt goodbye knowing that a tragedy was going to occur mm-hmm. and they and you know they were robbed of that mm-hmm. important moment they were robbed of closure they were and yeah. that's why the story of the titanic still goes on because there is a there is a lack of sense of closure mm-hmm. you know the National Maritime Museum here in Falmouth is yes. still running an exhibit called Titanic Stories. Yes, that's right. You know, the websites about the Titanic are just as active as they've ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, the, there is a lack of closure. So you wanted to bring that in a little bit. Yeah. Um, Give him a chance. I wanted to, to kind of offer something that might bring an emotional closure if, if we're never... I mean, did they recover his body? Well, they sent out a ship and they recovered approximately 350 bodies, but Mm. they were in pieces, they had rotted away. We don't know whose bodies they were. Maybe they salvaged bits of bodies, but a lot of those bodies were taken to America and buried. Obviously, the surviving family here never get that sense of closure yes. do we have his body yes. so if if you can't have that real grave there's just mm-hmm. a memorial a set of mm-hmm. words engraved on tombstones words right. are the only thing that can bring us close to any sort of closure yeah so i'll ask you what would your gravestone say um Words, maybe words can never say enough. I don't know. Uh, um, I mean, it would be something about wanting to bring peace to those who survive. Mm-hmm. Um, um, something like, if you are read, if you have survived me, and you are reading these words, then go in peace. Something like that. Yeah. You know. They are for those who are there to to read them. Those words aren't there. I think, and that's what gravestones are for as well. Mm-hmm. To kind of. And, and, you know, the cemetery in Falmouth does have a, a great sense of peace to it um, to help those that, that survive. That's right. You know? It's leafy. It's it's a beautiful location. Yeah, it's very breezy as well. Evocative, atmospheric. But, Lots of but, flowers But, but very still as well. Yeah, very, very still. still. Yeah. Well, many thanks, Adam. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to episode five of On the Hill. Thank you to the Red River Singers for sharing Landon Davis' story and allowing us to play his song. Thanks Adam for sharing his creative piece and research about Henry Kreese. Stay with us as in each episode we discover a new story, learn more about the cemetery, relate the historical account of someone who once lived, and share a creative response from one of our writers. Thank you to everyone who supported this project. We're very happy to be past 500 downloads and we're looking forward to hearing more about how you relate to On The Hill. If you want to lend us a hand, tell somebody about this podcast. Continue to rate and review it and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps. Find us on Twitter at We Are On The Hill or find us on Facebook at We Are On The Hill. On The Hill is written, recorded and produced in Falmouth by me, with the help of amazing local people and a host of talented writers. Research about Falmouth's response to the Titanic news and about Cornwall's shipwreck history by me. Research about Henry Philip Kreese by Adam Dalton. Fragments from the Lakes Falmouth Packet and Sir Robert Rawlinson's report 
Ray by Alex Horn. Creative piece by Adam Dalton. The Finest Ship by Len Davis was sung by the Red River Singers. This episode was edited by me. Our theme song is Precious Things by We Are Muffy. Join us again next month for our next episode. I am Sherezai Garcia-Rangel, and this is On The Hill. Sweet.